or we just started talking, we became friends, and he had about, him and his partner had about half a million dollars of capital to invest in a mining operation, and I was going to be the chief operating officer, and this guy, this other party, was going to be the CEO. Hey man, how you doing? Good man, how are you? Good, good. Thanks for uh, coming on and everything, I appreciate it. Yeah man, yeah. I'm here to just talk. Yeah, so the main reason I uh, originally wanted to have you on was um, when the stock market thing was happening with GameStop and whatnot, mm -hmm. I noticed that you were like really ramping up how much you were posting about um, not just, you know, stocks, but also cryptocurrency. Yeah. So I know that you're pretty knowledgeable with like the financial world mm -hmm. to, you know, the extent that you are compared yeah. to, you know, a lot of millennials and younger people who have no understanding of this at mm -hmm. all. So I thought it'd just be interesting to like talk to you about it. Yeah, I mean, if we want to dive straight into the GameStop situation, I wasn't personally invested in GameStop. However, uh, I am really crypto risk on in terms of the allocation of my portfolio is mainly crypto, mm -hmm. just because that's how I got started investing and that's where I'm most comfortable. Yeah, I do a little bit of uh, futures trading and spot trading as well. But with the whole GameStop situation, um, what really triggered this is there's brokers that allow institutions to borrow shares that they don't own. And is that what shorting is? That's what shorting is. And so when you short, you're essentially borrowing this stock and you get to sell it to them at a price or at this, you don't have to sell it to them at the same price, but you have to return that stock to them. And so the goal with shorting is that you can borrow the stock, sell it, the stock drops, you buy it back at a lower price, and then you give it back to them. Okay. So there, there, even right there is like a bit to unpack, I'm sure, for like some yeah. people, uh, including myself, who get a little bit confused. So I was first introduced to the idea of shorting when the movie The Big Short mm -hmm. came out. And to my understanding within that movie, uh, the financial crisis happened because there was a lot of stocks that are being bundled together that were actually worthless. And yeah. then these other guys shorted all of it because the market said that um, housing was a really great thing to get into and shorting it was kind of considered a crazy yeah. thing to do, but it turned out that they were right. So when yeah. the stocks failed, these people profited. So it's all, is exactly. it kind of like making a bet? Yeah, it's, it's essentially like making a bet and the brokerage is liable for if you lose it. That's why there's things called getting margin called, which is when you make a short, there's a thing you bar you're borrowing sometimes more than you're putting in. So there's things called margin requirements, which means you have to have at least a small amount or about 60% on average of the position that you're shorting in your bank account. And if it, if the stock drops heavily, if you're long, uh, longing, or if the stock goes up heavily, your margin requirements get adjusted at the end of each day. And so if that percentage move up was enough to trigger your margin call, the bank calls you and says, hey, you're getting margin called either deposit more money and have your margin requirements above our threshold or we liquidate your position. Okay. So, um, and I, I apologize if uh, yeah. I make you repeat yourself a little bit just because there, there's no a worries, lot, man. there's already like a lot going on no there. So with um, GameStop specifically, this is a company that a lot of people think are going to fail because it's just not completely relevant and like the current market of uh, downloading video games online. So yeah. a bunch of uh, wealthy people were able to short it to an incredible degree 
yeah. um, because they have a lot of money within their accounts to meet yeah. hedge funds, margin inst- calls, institutions. Um, what's really interesting about this situation is because you can borrow these stocks and then sell them like shorting. What you can also do when you get the when you sell those stocks is borrow the stock can get borrowed again, and so that's why short interest percentage of float is a metric used to calculate how many of the shares outstanding of the company are short. And you might think as like an average person that okay, the short percentage could only be up to one hundred, but because these borrowing happens and then these shares get borrowed almost twice or three times through different brokerages the short percentage of float can actually go above 100%. And so that's what we saw with GameStop is the short percentage of float was about 250% at the beginning of this run up. And so a lot of people noticed that because a lot of this data is public through Bloomberg. Um, but also you can see what positions these hedge funds are holding. And Citron Research and Melvin Capital were two of the biggest institutions that were holding these shorts. And so... People saw an opportunity. You know, a lot of people think that these hedge funds and these institutions hold most of the stocks, but aggregate, the household or households in the US hold about 40% of all equities in the. I think that's the last time I checked, about 35 to 40%. And then institutions were like, hedge funds were like 10%. And then investment banks were like 20%. But the main point is that there is power in the people and that. A lot of these stocks are held, a big percentage of them are held by households, not by banks. Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm going to ask you a question about what you just said. And then after that, I'd like to backpedal a little bit just to, again, re-clarify what shorting means mm-hmm. so that people can understand what it means uh, when you say things are borrowed multiple times. So you just said that um, all this financial data is public on things like Bloomberg, which tracks um, the purchasing of stocks and the value of stocks, if, if I have that correct. Mm-hmm. So you were saying that GameStop was at, let's say, 250% or so. So that's... Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure what the metric is now. Sure. So yeah. 250% of what exactly? 250% of the outstanding shares. And outstanding shares is how many there are available yeah. to buy? There's only 100% in okay. theory of spot shares. So it can only be 100% of 100%, you know, that's yeah. can't go over 100%. But it's artificially, they were able to short, in essence, 2.5 worth of GameStop stocks when there's only one number of GameStop stocks. So there's only, I don't know how many shares outstanding they have, but yeah. So basically, let, let's say all of the GameStop shares are represented by the number one or the percent of 100%. Yeah. And then other people come in and short these which is basically the process of or long it can have a sh- a long uh percentage of float and that could be over 100 percent as well and i'm not sure what that metric is on like a company like tesla but i'm sure it's pretty high sure now so so these mm-hmm. so these people whether or not they're uh institutions or mm-hmm. just individually like wealthy people they're coming in and shorting or longing these things which is you're saying exactly. the process of, of borrowing them? Borrowing them. Now, so it sounds like that happens without the knowledge of the person who owns it in the first place? Sometimes. I'm not sure because, like I said, my I stick to a lot crypto. I don't do yeah. as much equity trading. But from what I understand, yes, these banks are loaning these stocks out and they can do that. I could be wrong, though. But I do know for a fact that 
when you put stocks up for margin and you allow them to be borrowed, that's usually consensual. So I don't believe that they do that without the knowledge of. Okay. Um, so basically, these uh, brokerages are borrowing out stocks the way banks kind of kind of lend money to each other even though yeah. you have a, an account that says you own this amount of money it's kind of through this very convoluted system exactly. of borrowing and transferring okay so when a stock gets to be like over 250 percent due to this process happening over and over again is that yeah. just completely legal within the rules we have set up yeah, I think a lot of the financial system is set up in a way to where the average person doesn't understand. You know, most futures, all futures contracts are calculus formulas, and a lot of people don't have the time or to learn this stuff. Yeah. And so it's kind of like a, a club, if you will, that you're not invited to, mm -hmm. to understanding these products fully. And you, of course, you can go like me, like I'm in my last semester at ASU in finance and learn this stuff, but... To actually do it on your own requires your own capital. So you have to generate capital or you have to start a hedge fund. And those things, like the barrier to entry is really high. So yeah. the only people that get to really understand and play this game are the institutions. Yeah. So, you know, j just kind of classic story of it's really expensive to be poor. And when you're wealthy, yeah. it's easier to become more wealthy. Exactly. So when there's individuals who own stocks to a company and may, that maybe behind doors is being heavily shorted unbeknownst to them unless they look into it mm -hmm. is that process of the stock being shorted hurting or affecting the people who own the stocks so like for because i know in this case a bunch of people on reddit kind of took together after yeah. noticing what was happening and they all bought a lot of gamestop which then brought the value higher which then kind of flipped what these hedge fund people yeah. were doing because their their bets are now being proven wrong through reversing the value yeah i mean it provides an opportunity you can look at a high shorted short percentage of float metric and say there's an opportunity here to long this if you can get enough people to follow you and so that's what happened on wall street bets it was is it was sort of a group think uh phenomenon where everyone just decided hey I like GameStop. GameStop was good to me as when I was a child. I don't think that this company deserves to be shorted into bankruptcy. And we're going to, like, fuck the bankers. We're going to liquidate yeah. them. And so that's what happened. And uh, an institution, um, I forget what their name is, uh, actually had to bail out either Melvin Capital or Citron. Mm -hmm. I, I believe it was Melvin Capital with about $4 billion of liquidity so they could cover these shorts. And... You know, Chamath, Polyp, I'm not even going to attempt. I think, I think it's Polypatia. Polypatiana or something like that. Yeah. Um, he talks about how there's no transparency. I mean, some, these hedge funds are required, I think, quarterly to disclose their positions. But I believe, just like Chamath does, that we need more transparency in this industry. And it's just going to create another div division of classism. Mm -hmm. And you're going to have people turning to non-traditional assets like cryptocurrencies yeah gold um but gold is kind of a boomer asset you know yeah i don't really yeah i saw peter schiff arguing that cryptocurrency yeah. is dumb and you should buy gold peter, peter schiff is a clown yeah, yeah. <laughs> i would agree you know gold has moved like 10 percent or like 20 percent in like 10 years and now so you just mentioned one of those hedge funds yeah. um being bailed out is that being bailed out by another institution by another institution okay, so citadel now, citadel is the company okay. and 
Because I know a big uh, point of uh, Andrew Yang's like presidential yeah. campaign was how in 2007 we kind of bailed out the banks, but not the people who had their homes fucked exactly. up. So there's kind of the argument of like, should we bail out the institutions who, even after shit goes down, they still have money yeah. versus just individuals who are impacted? Well, if you want to kind of put a pin in this and go back to what happened in 2008, so I can kind of explain that in a little yeah, bit more sure. depth. So what happened was... The real estate market was recovering after the 2001, uh, like the the stock, uh, the tech bubble crash mm-hmm. of like the 90s, ni- late 90s to early 2000s. And Th- that was when dot com companies, the stocks were companies, going high. Enron, all that stuff. And they all crashed. And they all crashed. Well, Enron and t- the, st- the stock tech companies crashing were for two different reasons. Uh, Enron was playing a shell game, which basically they allocated a lot of their debt to these shell companies and allocated their assets to Enron. And so on paper, they looked really profitable. And in reality... Are shell companies like companies that are kind of just propped up? They're kind of almost fake in a a degree? A sense, because a lot of these companies that they were legitimate, but they were just allocating all their debt and putting it on the books of those shell companies. Okay. And in turn, boosting the the leverage ratios... That they had. Okay. Debt to equity ratios. Okay. So so companies will maybe buy other companies to kind of put their numbers in different places. Exactly. Create false perceptions of their value. But uh, so I believe it was Sarbanes and Oxley Act of 2002. Sarbanes and Oxley are another one. I, I always get them mixed up. Um, did a lot to counteract that. Mm-hmm. So now CFOs and CEOs have to sign off on their balance sheets as legitimate and so they're held liable okay for accounting fraud okay um but to dive into the 2008 yeah so the further, dot, so the dot-com crash crash happened yeah dot-com crash happened and then the real estate market was slowly increasing and then these mortgage companies or the companies that were issuing mortgages realized that if they could lax or lower their thresholds on applicate applicants like requirements for like income and job verification, all those things, they could give out more loans. And so what happened was is people were just taking out loans and they had ninja loans, so no income, no job applications. And those applications were getting processed. People were getting prime rates. And that was kind of used to target like immigrants as well. And so immigrants, they, like- immigrants and just anyone who needed a house. And so they were... It was just a a game, if you will. They were just letting people get these houses without people that shouldn't have been having one house or even five houses. And there's people that were getting five, seven houses using this method. Mm -hmm. And on books, you know, these people were actually keeping up with their rent for a while or their mortgage for a while. And so on paper, it looked like these, like the real estate market was really hot. And so... A guy named Michael Burry. Michael Burry was one of the first people to kind of notice this phenomenon as it was on the d- the down end, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of default rates, and so he was combing through all the default rates for these mortgages that were, uh, you know, uh, mortgage-backed securities. Could you really quick explain what a default rate is? So that's people who are not paying their mortgage. So okay. the people who are defaulting, like. One month or three months behind, and he noticed that this trend was increasing. And so, what these companies do, just to kind of backtrack a little more, yeah, is they package these companies up and these investment banks, and they create what's called a mortgage-backed security. And okay. so, 
a lot of the mortgage, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which are governmental, pseudo-governmental organizations, were guaranteeing these loans, which means that the guys who buy the mortgage-backed securities have no um, risk, essentially, if these loans default because Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were going to cover them. And so it's basically a house of cards, and Michael Burry noticed that. So he created one of the first CDS contracts, which is a credit default swap. And so in a credit default swap, it can be on any any loan-based asset. You can create this contract, and he actually had to get these cost contracts custom-made Yeah, because he was one of the first to identify this trend. I remember in The Big Short, it was the scene where uh, Christian Bale was going to all these individual banks and having them draw up really custom contracts because no, they had never heard of something yeah. like this where he was trying to bet these large amounts of money towards these yeah. against these housing yeah. loans. And so what happens on those contracts is you essentially have to pay a premium on those contracts to hold them to whoever's issuing them or underwriting them every year. And so, or even I think on some of his contracts, they were quarterly. So he was having to make quarterly payments uh, until these contracts defaulted or until he ran out of capital. And so Michael Burry was managing Scion's capital and they were really upset about him doing this, but it eventually turned out right. He made a lot of money and so did a lot of other people. But what happened is that companies like AIG, Lehman Brothers held, there were, I think there were like $63 trillion of of these type of contracts of the mortgage-backed securities and all this stuff. I don't remember the exact metric, but uh, it was a lot. And so it was enough to topple the whole financial industry. And so AIG was defaulted within a few days after this thing turned, after the the real estate market really went sour and people started selling the mortgage-backed securities at a loss. And it was just basically a seller's market and everything went to shit. Yeah. But uh, and did the government really do anything to help like the everyday people in this situation as a response, or did we really just help like the banks and then we helped the banks? And a lot of those banks, what they did is give big bonuses to their CEOs and stuff with that capital, so it's really fucked up, man. Yeah, because I, you know, I I followed uh, Andrew Yang's you know, uh, candidacy for president the most. And I, I remember he spoke a lot about this and how, you know, like we talk about how we can't afford universal income or healthcare, whatever it is. And he pointed out that we've had all these times where we've printed out equally as much money for institutions uh, just without, you know, the blink yeah. of an eye. Um, so I, I, I don't yeah. know. I just, I find that interesting that like both the government and these institutions are both just kind of, yeah. I mean, a thousand dollars a month comes out to like one point for every American comes out to like, trillion dollars a year and if we continue to do that it's not sustainable so from what i understand about andrew yang's campaign and what he's proposing is that instead of trickle down economics where we loan the banks this money and the banks um trickle down that stuff to the that opportunity to us what he would have is the government issuing these loans to the people so i don't know if they'd be loans because with the bank it's loans yeah and then the treasury has to pay back those loans to the federal reserve the way he explained it was they were truly dividends that you get and you keep but part of the way he wanted to pay for it was by implementing a value-added tax because currently amazon facebook and a lot of these other tech companies are paying 
zero in income taxes by kind of like messing with their books to report zero income. So yeah. So he wanted to implement a European style value added tax where just the transactions okay. of these institutions would be taxed. And that was estimated to generate about $800 billion of revenue um, to cover uh, most of it. And yeah. then the idea is um, instead of trickle down economics, it would become a trickle up economics uh, exactly. place yeah. where we would get more movement in the economy from everyday people having more, more money. money and then you know, that would get taxed over and over again. And the idea yeah. would be that it would pay for itself. Yeah, I support it just as long as rich people aren't getting these $1,000 a month dividends. And I think there should be a sliding scale mm -hmm. of income and your eligibility to receive these dividends. Sure. I don't think anyone making above $70,000 with no kids mm -hmm. should be able to get an extra $1,000 extra a month. You know, morally, I completely agree with you. I think the main reason why he wanted to give it to everybody with no um, uh, income requirements was simply that uh, it would be e if it was truly just all citizens, it would be easier to implement and just get out to everybody faster. Exactly, yeah. And how like the government bureaucracy of trying to like income verify the whole country would actually slow down the process of getting money to people. And we kind of see that now with the stimulus checks, how like they're the kind of or the pandemic unemployment. Yeah. yeah. Versus just saying, OK, we're sending this to everyone right now. Um, yeah, I think I think you're right. And I think a lot of people, you know, what I mean, there'll be people who scam that as well. So, yeah, I, I think that there would definitely be some people who abuse it at the margins. But I think yeah. like the net good of like all the people who do genuinely need it and use it in the right yeah. way is like paying off of uh, debt or emergency situations it would be well worth it yeah um so so to go back to um we were talking about the housing crisis kind of as a mm -hmm. way of contextualizing the gamestop thing i w one thing you did say um was how these redditors said gamestop doesn't um deserve to be shorted so when a company is being shorted is that directly negatively impacting them yeah it impacts the shareholders because the price goes the price goes down okay and you know what I mean? They're losing capital gains or losses. Are their their losses are increased depending okay. on where they purchase the security? Gotcha. What time? Okay. But um, and we we can we can hop over to talking about crypto as well. Yeah, I, I know well, that's no, more it's I, I don't mind talking about it. I just am not as big of an expert as I am with crypto. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, but I think that some companies do deserve to be shorted, and I think that everyone has the right to short. I don't think, I think it's a slippery slope if you say stocks can't be shorted, like, or we need to put shorting limitations. I think that impacts the free market and I think it impacts, you know, people's decisions. You know, people are allowed to short stocks. You know, if you have a, a thesis and you wanna risk your own capital, I think you should be able to. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I can see that argument. I, uh, I haven't, I feel like I'm not, knowledgeable enough on it to have much of a moral yeah. argument for being able to do it or not yeah, but I, I can i can see why people would want to i think one detriment to society is the fact that Robinhood is essentially gamified investing okay and i think a lot of these especially like these crypto derivative futures contracts that you can trade with little to no kyc which is know your customer anti-money laundering rules which allow or not allow it makes it, so when you sign up for a Robinhood, you have to give them your social, you have to do address verification, you have to do income verification. With these crypto derivatives like on Binance, BitMEX, uh, FTX, 
now there's a lot more KYC involved and there's a lot more IP banning and you have to use VPNs to use these services and there's withdrawal limitations if you're not fully verified. And so uh, I think they're doing a better job about making sure like a kid, a, a 12 year old can't buy some Bitcoin and go lose it all. Yeah. Trading futures at a hundred X leverage. Yeah. So let, let me uh, break down what you just said for the audience. So Robinhood is an app where people are very easily able to buy and sell stocks as well as cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or Dogecoin. Yeah. And, um, and margin trade. Okay. And so, buy, so borrow more than the capital that you have, Okay. which you can get margin called and liquidate your whole position. And then options contracts where if your options contract expires before or expires at a price below than what you bought it, it expires worthless. And where the way option contracts were created and what they were created for was to hedge uh, spot positions. So spot is buying like a stock, like just like how you normally would. And derivatives like futures and options and other contracts like forwards and but we won't get into those but um, allow you to trade with margin and they mimic the price movement of the underlying stock now options don't directly mimic the price movement so with futures you can buy game stocks at fifteen dollars you could buy a futures contract and the price will be generally close to there's there's some uh, variance of where the futures price and the spot price are at any given time, there will always be a little bit of variance, but there's a convergence theory that all, well, not a theory, but all stock spot prices and futures prices converge to the exact same price by expiration. And that's when the contract expires and you can either cash out your position at a loss or a gain, or you can roll over your futures contract to the next expiration. Sure. So uh, I'll, I'll be honest, there was a lot there I did not fully understand. Yeah. But I, I think what I'm hearing as a bottom line is that people are able to leverage large amounts of money that they don't have very easily on mobile apps. Um, exactly. And now, before you were um, talking about other crypto services um, like Binance and mm -hmm. uh, some of the other ones you said. Now, are you saying that those ones are better because they have more limitations and they're in essence more regulated? Is that the idea? Um, no, I think the benefit that Binance has is that it's not based in the U.S. And so I think the U.S. puts a lot of limitations on what kind of securities you can buy and even what cryptos you can buy. And so Binance doesn't have those limitations because they're based out of China. And any crypto that they deem good enough to be on their exchange, you can trade. And they have over 600 pairs. You go to Binance U.S. and there's only about 20 pairs you can trade. And, um, but it's more risky. It's more risky. And the futures contracts that they let you trade with, they let you trade on Bitcoin. They let you trade up to 125x. So just for math's sake, I'll call it 100x. That means you get to trade with 100 times more money than you have. So if you have $100, you get to trade with $10,000 worth of money. And you get the gains if you would on $10,000 worth of capital that you would have. That's kind of the best way I can explain it. 
So is is that sort of like saying you you have a hundred dollars, but you're kind of artificially purchasing ten thousand dollars worth using a contract, but then if the gains get to a point that it's paying off what you leveraged, then you you've now paid off that ten thousand, and then you continue to keep yeah. the the gains after that. So yeah, but with Binance, as they liquidate you at um, one hundred percent loss of your collateral. So if you're if you're putting up $100 mm-hmm. to get $10,000 worth of purchasing power that means if the price moves uh 1% against you your whole $100 is liquidated. Now this is fine and dandy talking about $100 cuz that's like what most people would be able to risk losing, you know, to a certain extent. Yeah. But there's people like I have friends who jumped on Binance and didn't know that they were on because it default puts you on 20x leverage. I trade with like, I used to trade really high leverage and be a big speculator. I've made a bunch of money. I've lost a bunch of money. And I, it's just not consistent for me to be profitable. And I think it's an immature style of investing and it's for children. Sure. Like, or people who are inexperienced and are going to lose money. But like I said, they start you at 20x leverage. I only trade up to 5x. Okay. So... And I have stop losses and stuff in place so I don't get liquidated. I see. So what would a stop loss be basically if it starts to get this level of bad, just like call it? Yeah, it cuts, the, it cuts the position before, you know, because crypto, like there's dumps and stuff where it can drop like 10%, 20% in one one minute candle I've seen happen. Is a dump when just like all these holders just sell and then so, the value just goes way down? Or in crypto institutions take out a big leverage short and tank the market. Okay, so w- w- when you're saying that Robinhood has kind of gamified this, you're basically saying that um, these are all mostly highly volatile yeah. things and there's now a lot more everyday people getting into stuff that they don't fully understand. Exactly, and I think Robinhood's not the only one to blame. Because I know, uh, ca- because you can trade with Cash App as well. You can buy crypto spot with Cash App, but not leverage trade. Okay. So yeah. so that so that's the main difference that you're leveraging with money that you don't have. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um yeah, and and Robinhood is like the most famous one. Robinhood's the most famous, but you know, you have Binance. I mean, I've lost a bunch of money on BitMEX. I mean, I made a bunch of money on BitMEX like it's crazy, man, cuz like you can turn $300 into $10,000 in a matter of an hour. Mm-hmm. Less than that if you time time it right and so it becomes addicting bro it's like gambling it's like sex addiction it's like porn addiction whatever you heroin bro because the the dopamine hit that you get when you do something like that like arnold said when about lifting like arnold schwarzenegger is you know it's better than sex like it's it's like the same feeling it's very euphoric and i think it ties a lot of people in and it's damaged a lot of lives yeah and do I think margin trading is inherently bad? No. But do I think that when you're borrowing more, more than you're putting up as collateral, you have to be careful and ask yourself, like, is this a prudent investment? Um, am I making sure that all my positions have stops? Like, you have to do the due diligence of preparing yourself for this type of transaction because it's dangerous. Okay. No, that, that all- And I don't think Binance or any of these other exchanges that offer margin or futures uh, leverage really do a, a good job about explaining these risks to their clients. And there's a reason for that because it's extremely profitable for them 
to not tell that to their clients because they make money on trading fees on spot and then they make money whenever someone gets liquidated. They absorb that as a gain and, you know, they take a hit when somebody um, makes it big as yeah. well. So, you know, a lot of people can lose a lot of money doing this type of yeah. stuff. And that's why I don't recommend it unless you either have gone to school for finance, like you've taken a course on derivatives, like even a Coursera, like, you know, a lot of people don't even know what expiry or beta or gamma on options are. They don't understand it implied volatility or the premium that they're paying for these contracts they just go out and they buy a yellow option and it expires worthless or they buy something on 50x leverage and they get liquidated and yeah and let me ask you really quick do you see the red recording light is it still going yeah okay i just wanted to make sure i wish i could see it from my angle oh, all good man appreciate it um, so you, you just said you don't, um, recommend it unless you've, you know, done all these prerequisites. And even then you're so. not fully prepared until you, if I, if well, someone, well, really quick, yeah. when, when you say you don't recommend it, do you mean trading at all or trading with leverage? Because, you know, there's some people who maybe just like on cash app throwing $50 at like some yeah. random stock. Like, is, is In, investing and speculating are two different things. Okay. So you're, Everyone, you're describing every, speculating, speculating and day trading and scalping so trying to get make a one percent gain on maybe 20x leverage which is a 20 percent gain so trying to catch so scalping a move or just trying to trade a stock in a day and then selling your stock at the end of the day you know these brokerages love that because they're getting money off fees i see and then um so i know when so basically, all these uh, redditors band together to buy a bunch of GameStop, bring the value up, and I know the original uh, Reddit user. I think his name was Deep Fucking Value, yeah. and he he was kind of like the Michael Burry of the situation, where he looked at what was happening and he decided to do something kind of contrarian. Mm -hmm. I know at some point he was up, I believe, fifty million dollars, and then the next day Robinhood made it to where you could only sell your GameStop position but yeah. not purchase it. So. As a result, a lot of people got nervous, sold yeah. immediately, and then I believe uh, this Reddit user who was up 50 million then became only up 30 million. Um, so uh, I know that there's now question that Robinhood making it to where you could only sell and yeah. not buy is kind of possibly illegal and like market manipulation. Yeah. Well, it it you know it's it's convoluted, man, because it's not necessarily Robinhood's. It is Robinhood. You know, it's their fault for a lot of shit. But, like, for this particular situation, Robinhood isn't a clearinghouse. And a clearinghouse is what processes the and matches these orders, order books of or the, does the settlement of these exchanges that happen between multiple different brokerages. Because Robinhood isn't only selling to buyers on Robinhood. They use a bank, interbank system that allows them to tap into liquidity, which is other people buying and other people selling on other exchanges. And so Citadel was, I don't, I'm not sure if Citadel is a clearinghouse. Like I said, I'm not the most versed on stock shit, but um, I know Citadel processes a lot of transactions for Robinhood and Citadel is the company that bailed out Melvin Capital with the $4 billion. So is there some collusion? I think to a degree. Do I think it's as demonized as people who are uneducated like make it out to be? No. So I I know that in the uh, 
interviews with the Robinhood CEO the day after, he was kind of describing their decision as necessary. Um, do you believe that's the case? Because it sounded almost like he was trying to say that like their servers couldn't handle the amount of purchases or maybe they no. didn't have enough, enough capital to like, I, I, yeah, I, I, didn't, so they, I didn't really understand his explanation to what they did. So those clearinghouses have deposit requirements and and it, those deposit requirements are, on dif are different on every security because some securities have a higher beta, which means they're more volatile. And GameStop wasn't as, I mean, it, it was volatile, but not to the, the degree of going up like 400,000%. Um, so what happens is those clearinghouses raise their deposit requirements and Robinhood wasn't able to fulfill them. So they had to pause trading. And that's what they explained. They're in court right now. Everything is going to come to light because the SEC is going to investigate or the House of Financial, the Financial Committee or whatever is investigating them. So the truth is eventually going to come to light. What would have happened to Robin Hood if they didn't pause the trading? Would they have gone under as a result? Well, yeah, well they would have been they would have been flush out of cash because the deposit so many people were buying it on their exchange and so they would have had to match these deposit requirements at the clearinghouses and if you don't then it's just a bad situation for them. I don't know exactly what the implications yeah. are, but it would it was eating into their cash reserves. Maybe now they're not able to process withdrawals in cash. Okay. Yeah. So then it just kind of becomes a philosophical argument of if they should have allowed the free market to just do what it does and make themselves flush out of cash so people could do what they wanted or. Yeah. And then people would be, I think people, people who aren't entrepreneurs, people who don't own their own business, people who aren't CEOs sometimes have a, a big qualm or issue with rich people and think that rich people are always out to get them. I don't think that's always the case. Like Elon said on the Joe Rogan podcast is like demonizing people. It's never really, people are never really as bad as you make them out to be. I know some people are, so it's not always like the case, yeah. but I think a lot of this times people are maybe wish they were rich and wish they were maybe uh, owner of a company. Does that mean I'm like out here defending these companies? No, but I think if you don't understand what goes on in investing in the first place and the frameworks behind these companies, I don't think you should be able to just say, fuck Robin Hood. Because what they do and what the way they started was sort of trying to get everyday people to invest. And I think what turned that turned into is letting people gamble. So they've essentially kind of turned into a little bit of a gambling company. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I appreciate that you're having like a pretty nuanced opinion on yeah. this where you're not exactly saying fuck them, but then also like fuck certain things that they did. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know how accurate this is, but I also heard that a lot of the way they make their money is by selling off their trading information to other institutions, yes. which then allows these institutions and wealthy individuals to almost know what's going to happen with the stock market and then yeah. act accordingly. And that seems more like kind of yeah. wealth manipulation. Yeah. I mean, a lot of brokerages counter trade their retail traders and it's profitable because retail traders usually don't know what the hell they're doing. So kind of like selling yeah. insurance on a building they know is going to burn down. Exactly. Exactly. Or just at least capitalizing off of it in some, some way. Sure. Okay. And we, we can move on to talking a little bit about cryptocurrency. Now, 
Um, I, I was joking with you before we started that, you know, some people out there genuinely think you have to buy an entire Bitcoin. So when they hear Bitcoin exactly. is worth $57,000, they think like, how am I going to participate in this? So um, to explain, uh, a dollar bill can be broken into a hundred pennies. A Bitcoin can be broken into, I believe, a million Satoshis, yeah. which... And using these trading apps, you could buy $1 worth of Bitcoin, then you just own this huge fractional amount. Yeah. Now, the way I've heard it explained is philosophically, the reason people think uh, Bitcoin is a uh, viable technology and currency, besides the fact that people can make money off of it trading, is that um, it is a currency that is global and non-national, and because of this, it is basically a regulationless currency, and people like the idea of having yeah. an asset that is like free of government. Yeah, there's a lot of things that make Bitcoin valuable. You know, it's a currency, it's a speculative asset, and it's also a store of value. Now, granted, it's a very volatile store of value. So, if you look at the beta of Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin has a really high beta, but if you look at the year-over-year year percentage gains, there's only been one year or two years where if you had bought in those years, you would have been at a loss. So right now, most people that have purchased Bitcoin at any point in history are, are up. And so when you have an asset that's completely free of, you know, there's people who still market make Bitcoin, which are institutions that gain a big, like, position in bitcoin and essentially move the markets is that like when tesla recently bought a billion dollars worth of bitcoins no that's that's uh that's a that's a public company converting a, per, a portion of their balance sheet into bitcoin okay and that they can essentially write off the bitcoin as a loss but the percentage gain they actually don't have to from what i understood i watched a couple videos on sort of the the balance sheet benefits to holding bitcoin on your balance sheet and so is that kind of like a way for them to almost write off a billion dollars off their taxes and because we have very little uh i i'm not a cpa and i'm not an accounting major so i couldn't okay. go into the details of like okay. the benefits or the gap regulations that allow them to gap is like the u.s there's ifrs or isfrs or something like that that governs the global um accounting measures and regulations and the way you're supposed to do it the formats and stuff and then there's gap which is only for the u.s and it's a governmental organization that oversees the accounting standards so i don't know what finagling they're doing with gap but it must have been some loophole that will probably be patched up maybe because you know this is turning bitcoin into a global reserve currency that's competing with the dollar yeah and i think we i can go on about the the biggest benefits of Bitcoin, and I will right now, actually. Yeah. You know, it's decentralized, meaning there's nodes and miners that are being ran in almost every single country, meaning that if one country decides to ban it, all these other countries are going to still be keeping up the, the network. There's Bitcoin satellites. If the power goes down, Bitcoin can be sent over radio frequencies. So... Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. And it's it'll it's a lot slower and it's not going to run how it would be running if it was on the internet, but it's still in theory possible if like we had a, a power wipeout. But if we had a power wipeout, the radio's signals probably wouldn't work either, so. Yeah. 
I, uh, I've seen the argument recently, the, the more people are, I feel like the more uh, topic is trending in the news and social media, the more people have um, criticism towards it. So now that Bitcoin has yeah. been being talked about a lot lately, I've been seeing people make the arguments that it's like environmentally bad because more people are running unnecessary computers and graphics cards. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how legit, how big of an impact a single... Yeah, there's people that have been making that argument for a while and you know it's partially valid, but... I think as more as it becomes harder and harder to mine one Bitcoin, you know, every four years, the amount of Bitcoin reward that's given to the uh, the miner or miners who solve that block in the blockchain gets halved, and it's called the halving, and it happens every four years. It happened in 2016, where it was halving to from 25 to 12 and a half Bitcoin per block reward, and then in 2020, it's now at 6.25. So yeah. Um, j just for anybody who doesn't uh, understand, so you're using these computers to solve complex algorithms, which yeah. basically then creates a Bitcoin, which is, let's say, like a file that could never be recreated. Yeah. It's a one of one similar to a dollar with a serial number. And basically the way Bitcoin as a technology was created every four years, the amount you get from mining is halved. And it was also created to where one day Bitcoin will be finite and there's never another one that can yes. be created. And a lot of people say, what's the incentive for miners to run the network when there's no more block reward? Yes, the block native block reward will go away. But with every block that's solved, all miners get the fees that were paid in that transaction. So you could have a theoretical transaction from 2016 where... Uh, or 2017, where a block was solved and they were given 12 and a half Bitcoin, and then maybe they received 2.75 additional Bitcoin as fees that were paid, which is why Bitcoin is not very great as a currency, because in times where Bitcoin isn't as volatile, like it's maybe flat a little bit in the market, uh, the fees will be lower, but it's still usually about $5 to send a transaction. And so for the everyman, that's not necessarily viable as a currency, but um, you have people who send $10 billion worth of Bitcoin. And even if the fees were insane during a time of volatility, say let's say the fees were 50, so $50 to transport $10 billion in assets. If you tried to transport $10 billion of cash, you would need a Brinks truck, security, all this type of stuff, and you would have counterparty risk. And if you tried to transport that with gold, it would be more trucks, more security guards, people who lift it and have to bring it into this institution, and then just a lot of stuff to worry about. So with Bitcoin, you can send $10 billion of value for 50 bucks. I think, yeah. I think it's, uh, it does its job as a pseudo currency and a store of value well. Now, I've, um, I've, I've heard a lot about Ethereum lately because, yeah. as I understand it, that is the uh, number two uh, highest valued asset right now in cryptocurrency. And I've also heard a bit about XRP, which I don't know anything about. Yeah. Um, so I can talk about those. Yeah, sure. So is besides the fact that there's just like a lot of people out there who are maybe doing speculating like mm -hmm. we discussed earlier where they want to make money off of these perceived values Do, does a cryptocurrency like ethereum get to where it's at right now as number two because people prefer the the technology or the pros and cons of things yeah. that you just described so ethereum is different from bitcoin and i i like to say it's like the next 
evolution of Bitcoin, but it's not better than Bitcoin because it's more decentralized. There's less computing power on the Ethereum network relative to Bitcoins, which means, you know, a 51% attack on a blockchain is when somebody is able to acquire 51, more than 50% of the computing power of a network and then point their miners to that network. And if they have more than 51%, then they can essentially rewrite the blockchain. So Bitcoin's very, its risk for a 51% attack is almost impossible. Sorry, I, uh, I'm i not really sure what an attack is. Could, could you so re, that could would you be that would be a malicious this? party trying to double spend Bitcoin or basically write, write the blockchain themselves and create fake transactions and manipulate the, the, the network. Now, to my understanding, the way blockchain worked was it was a bunch of um, computers basically constantly verifying information with each other so yeah. that something like that couldn't happen. Are you yeah. saying that that is possible, though? It is possible if you have more than 51% of the computing power of the network. And that's why Bitcoin has its value is because even if Google pointed all their computing power at Bitcoin, Bitcoin Google servers aren't Bitcoin miners meaning they're not optimized to mine Bitcoin like miners are. So when you say 51% of the network, do you mean all of the computers participate? Yeah, the computing power of those, because not all Bitcoin, there's Bitcoin miners from 2010 that mine like one mega hash. And now like there's a Bitmain S9 or S10 that has 20 terahashes. So, you know what I mean? They, the, these miners become more powerful each and every year on the new models. And so it adds more hash power to the network. And so servers like Google's aren't optimized to mine SHA-256, which is Bitcoin's cryptographic algorithm. Okay. So does it sound then like it's almost virtually impossible to basically get to 51% of all of the computing power? Yeah, unless... I mean, the issue then becomes quantum computing, which is not only 51% attack, so quantum miners. It also is quantum, uh, like, brute forcing. So brute forcing a Bitcoin password, which is essentially where you are get a computer is guessing the password of a Bitcoin address, and it's trying multiple times really fast. And it may take, like, days or weeks, but if it, a quantum computer... Um, a good one or one that works with that existed, you would have the problem of people's passwords being cracked or their private keys. And this would be possible because quantum computers in theory just are like supercomputers super that can, yeah. that can uh, calculate things at like a way higher degree than yeah. anything else. Higher processing again. power. Yeah. Okay. See now th this is one of the other reasons why, uh, Andrew Yang caught my attention because he, he spoke about creating a global organization called the World Data Organization, where he would try to get other uh, countries together to basically create global regulations, kind of similar to the Geneva, uh, I think it's called the Geneva Contract or the Geneva Agreement, which yeah. refers to... Uh, crimes against humanity, like within war. Um, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm saying all this wrong, but essentially he wanted to create like the World Data Organization to try to create some global standards regarding quantum computing, AI and cyber warfare, um, data as like human property rights. Yeah, anytime I hear global organization, bro, I, I, don't, I don't like that because yeah. that's 
you're creating a sovereign entity over, you know, there's corruption and things like that. So I think a decentralized, if we could program that, because there's things, and we didn't even dive into why I thought, why Ethereum is different than Bitcoin. Sure, yeah. And let's let's do that because that kind of opens the possibility to decentralizing more aspects of government to a contract. And so so basically instead of uh, in your mind instead of getting a bunch of countries to agree about standards, you would rather just like the computing and the coding get to a point to where these uh, malicious acts wouldn't be possible. Yeah, that and then you could create decentralized organizations that appoint people and people are able to vote on the efficacy of that person and then vote them out through a protocol. And so that's why Ethereum differs from Bitcoin is because for every Bitcoin transaction, you can only code so much data in the note section or just the metadata. It's very little. Like you can maybe put like a very low resolution picture or like a little bit of coding on there. But with Ethereum, each uh, token, you can create what's called a smart contract. And so a smart contract can execute a very a varying number of parameters dependent on situations and so there's these things called oracles which link chain link is a, is a coin that i like because it's creating a bunch of trusted oracles so an oracle if i if i create wrote a smart contract on ethereum and i it was an insurance contract say i'm throwing a concert and if it rains on this day then I'm shit out of luck. I have to pay vendors. I have to pay artists that I pay. And so you are maybe an insurance underwriter or a private insurance underwriter. And you you will basically take that contract and say, hey, I'll insure you for all the tickets paid, plus the vendor fees, plus uh, artist budget, if it rains on this day. And say there's like a 40% probability that it's going to rain. And they adjust your premium for that insurance contract accordingly to that risk so if it rained and you i the insurance underwriter would be able to program those parameters saying if it rains on this day this person gets paid out this amount of money and so by engaging with the contract and it, it would point that money to your ethereum address and so i'm getting just Stay with me here for a second because I'm going to make it make sense in a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, where was I? Yeah, so it would point to your address and pay you in Ethereum or whatever you want in your address if it rained. But the question comes is who is the trusted resource? So it gets rid of a lot of counterparty risk doing that because you could audit. I could have my own auditor or smart contract auditor say, yes, this contract is written correctly in the programming language to where you will get paid out if this. So you don't need to have an escrow. You don't have to pay escrow fees. You don't have to pay insurance fees um, to a third party and have that third party hold that money. The contract essentially executes if it rained that day. But who's to say it rained that day? So that's why you need oracles, which are basically trusted databases that you can connect to their API and say, okay, this database will tell me if it rained or not that day. And it's a trust. It's, it's, it's a trusted oracle. And that's what Chainlink 
is aiming to do. And that's why I like Chainlink is because it's creating these trusted databases that people can, who write smart contracts can execute. Or if you had a sports bet that you wrote on a smart contract that it would say the Buccaneers won, payout bill, $100. Sure. Now, okay, so... That's what makes it valuable. And that's what makes it different than Bitcoin. So Chainlink is both currency but it's also like a technology mechanism it's in a, which it's a token it's an erc erc20 is the product is the protocol that it's classified under and it, that's just a type of token that you can create on the ethereum blockchain so these are crypto assets each chain link is a crypto asset but chain link doesn't have its own blockchain it runs off the ethereum blockchain okay so um just to rewind really quick, so th things like Bitcoin, things like Ethereum, they're simultaneously a, a blockchain as well as an asset, and that asset is being created yeah. and you know kind of data stored within its own blockchain. So now you're describing something uh, like Chainlink, which is running within Ethereum's blockchain. Yeah, Ethereum is basically a big supercomputer that you can create dApps on or decentralized applications. Okay, so Chainlink itself is not a currency, but it's a... It's a token. It's a token. And a token is basically like, a, it sounds like a contract? Yeah, it's like a smart contract. Now, so it's a programming script that exists on certain parameters. So a protocol, if you will. Sure. Now, uh, describe the, uh, the situation that you just described as an example with somebody maybe uh, making a business risk, uh, like insurance contract... If you were to draw one of those up using this technology, um, are you engaging in this agreement with another party that is paying you out? And do, do those people, I mean... Yeah, you can set it to whatever you want. You can set it to pay people out. You can set it to where you're programming, say somebody launches a new token, that you can program those tokens to only be released to the, a certain percentage of the tokens that are the founder's tokens. You can program them in the contract to only be released to the founders over a vested maybe five-year period. But what I'm saying is like, so with, um, uh, and, and I appreciate that clarification, but with like the rainy day example you gave. Yeah. So somebody's trying to throw an event, they don't want it to rain, but if it does, they want to like make this uh, money essentially. Are they, who's paying them that money? Is that another person? That yeah, that would be any other party. Any, any person who's wanting to underwrite that risk. Okay, so is that a situation where somebody is basically sifting through the blockchain, they come across one of these token contracts, and they think, I could make some money off of this because... I don't know anything like that that exists, but all I know is that like it, it could... If you found somebody just through like business relationships and you didn't want to pay an insurance company with the fees that they had, it would be two private parties that had essentially come to this agreement before writing the contract and then use the contract just to execute the parameters of it. Okay, so this is less of a network of people kind of getting into arrangements and more private individuals. Yeah, I mean, there's blockchains like REP, or, or not blockchains, tokens like REP or Augur, which their token is REP, which means reputation, and that's a decentralized betting application and so you can find people who are taking the other side of a bet you would want to take. And this, this protocol executes the payout of it. So this person puts up their capital. So you know that this person's not going to pay you if the debt, um, if the debt uh, 
if they get into debt or something like that, you know that that money is there. The smart contract essentially acts as an escrow agent to pay you if you win or pay the balance of whoever wins to whoever. So the the common theme I'm kind of hearing here is that... But that's like that's like a network, though, where you can find other people to take, like... A contract like that yeah and it's like a network where you could find other people who would you know say maybe i want the bucks to, i wanted the bucks to win you could find someone that's betting that was betting on the uh who, who else was it the uh, uh i think it was kansas city. kansas city yeah duh but um i didn't watch super Bowl. yeah i don't I, I played collegiate football bro and i don't really watch sports that much i mean yeah. i play a little bit of uh fantasy football just because i'm a degenerate but um <laughs> yeah I, uh, so uh, the common theme I'm hearing with all these like examples you're describing is these are all decentralized. Um, I don't know if you would call them organizations, but basically um, yeah. programs, wh- yeah. whatever, and they're all running off of blockchain technology. Yeah. Now, is the perceived benefit that because it's decentralized, there's less fees, there's less middlemen like insurance companies, and because it's running off of algorithms like people pretty much yeah. can bet on things happening. Well, if you if you do another traditional bet through like a bookie that you know or like you know or a or a casino, you have to, you know, the casino could say you know, we I don't know how much room casinos have to say, to not fulfill their end of bets, but there's always like some sort of risk like maybe they think it's illegal money or sure. um are your bookie over leverages himself on a day and doesn't have enough money to pay you back. So those are the only current options right now. Or, you know what I mean? In the U in the US, a lot of states don't have gambling legalized. So, you know, Augur's protocol will probably be blocked in those states, but if you run a VPN, you can connect to Augur and you don't have to do any KYC. You don't have to give them any of your information. It essentially tre- creates a trustless economy where you don't have to trust the other person. You don't have to have trust in the other person. Because you, you have, have trust in the technology. In the, in the contract, okay. exactly. Okay. And as long as you either audit the contract yourself or pay someone to audit it, that it's not, there's no loopholes. Because there was a scam one time where people, this guy said, hey, I, I went on Reddit and he's like, say, hey, I have this wallet. There's like all these amount of coins in here, these tokens, but I don't want to claim it or something like he just tried to find some suckers and he had a con- smart contract on that wallet excuse me where any funds that were deposited in, in that wallet um would go to another wallet so he posted the private keys of this wallet this rigged wallet and was basically made this excuse saying like i don't have enough money to send this transaction somewhere else because Every time you interact with a smart contract or you interact with the Ethereum blockchain, you have to pay what's called gas, and that's Ethereum. So you, if you, I want to send Chainlink to you, I would have to pay a little bit of Ether, have a little bit of Ether in my wallet as well to pay for that transaction to be processed to the miners. So what this guy did, <laughs> it's genius, but also incredibly unethical. He found all these people who were like, hey, I'll claim those coins. I have enough ETH to... Um, access to access it so i'll send the ethereum to this address and then that they would try to send the money that they just deposited and get take those tokens out of there and then that money had already been sent automatically to his wallet 
I see. So basically they're putting money into a wallet that they were given the keys to. They look in the wallet, nothing's in there because it was automatically sent to another one through the smart contract and then these people can't do anything about it. Exactly. That's how there's no there's no Ethereum one eight hundred number. Yeah yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah. No, that sounds extremely unethical, but it also sounds like those people maybe should have known not to Yeah <laughs> do that. Exactly. I mean I, I, I consider myself a pretty compassionate guy. I'm I'm more educated than most in investing, but when I hear people losing their money from stuff, I don't point and laugh. Like it just it makes me sad because like I think everyone should have a fair chance at understanding the financial industry and understanding the mechanics of finances and investing. But the standardized curriculum in the U.S. doesn't prioritize it. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think that like life skills and basic economics, even if it's just paying your taxes, should definitely be standardized uh, universal high school curriculum for sure. Yeah. Um, now, wh what made you get into all of this? Was it an interest in just making money through the financial system? Was it out of interest well, from crypto? The first time I bought some Bitcoin was with my buddy. He's an advisor. At but uh, I won't... Um, Maybe you can edit that out. Yeah, I can censor that. Censor that. Um, my buddy, Dave. Here, let me, let me mark the time really quick. You can keep right. talking. Okay. Yeah, you're good. Okay. So um, the first time I got into crypto was with my buddy, Dave. We'll call him. And he, uh, me and him were in high school, and he showed me this website called The Silk Road, which was created by a guy named Ross Ulbricht, Free Ross. Um, but who's actually serving a two-year life sentence um, without the possibility of parole because um, it was, I think, I believe he was set up, but they say he tried to get someone whacked, but I don't believe that he did that. But anyways, he created this decentralized black market where people could buy drugs, passports, like any nefarious thing you wanted, but the typical risk behind doing one of those transactions with people you don't know was sort of taken out of the equation because people could just uh, pay Bitcoin and do it. And so my buddy showed me that and I was kind of terrified, but I was also intrigued. And then when I started playing football at NAU, I got some, uh, what's it called? Some financial aid and I bought like two Bitcoin. And that's, that's sort of where I became on that journey. And then I Came back, I got hurt playing football, came back to the Valley, got a shitty job because all I knew was football for the past five years and that was essentially taken away from me. Um, so I got the shitty job at Leslie's Pool Supplies and I was just like so fed up with like working there. And I eventually got a job at Urgent Care, but I hated that too. So I started flipping electronics. Uh, well, I started repairing phones first, then got into, realized that I could make a lot of money if I just bought these phones from people at a discounted price because they were broken and then I could flip them. And so I did that for a couple of years. But in 2017, um, someone I know got a settlement and I was reading about how profitable mining was at that time. And so uh, I'm not going to dox this person. I know this person very close and they're very close to me, but uh, I'm not going to dox them. Yeah, that's okay. So they had a bunch of money and I basically told them that I knew how to build computers. I could build these miners. I could run an operation with these miners and manage everything, the custody of the assets, 
investor relationships, the IT behind actually getting these miners connected, the security behind keeping those passwords secure, and just basically run the whole thing. And so they agreed, and we had some other investors too, and had about $100,000 of investment in that company, but we paid a really high premium for miners. And so we kind of got fucked because Bitmain, the company that was producing these ASICs is what they're called. They're called application-specific integrated circuits. And they're, they're uh, motherboards and hardware that is designed to specifically optimize to mine Bitcoin. And there's ASICs for Litecoin. There's ASICs for other uh, coins, too. And we also had GPUs. So we were mining Ethereum as well. And we just, for the first round of equipment we got, we paid a really good price. But when during the mania and the hype, we paid an exorbitant amount of these miners because the calculations I did said, if even if we paid this high premium, we could either sell them because there's still the hype behind them, or we'll make a return on our investment very quickly to make up for that premium. And so what happened then is Bitmain became... Uh, a lot of people canceled their orders with Bitmain. They were under some legal trouble. And so what they were doing is creating an artificial shortage of supply with these miners. So creating this like lucrative secondary market of these miners. But when they got into legal trouble and the CEO wanted to leave the company and like all this stuff, they just dumped their stock. And so they were at one point were creating more processors they were ordering more processors from the manu same manufacturer that Samsung was, more than Samsung for a brief window during 2017. So that tells you how much stock that they had. And they just completely tanked the price of them. And the person close to me lost a lot of money. I was vested in the operation. I lost all my like OG Bitcoins just because I over we over leveraged ourselves in this operation because we were making good money. And it was scalable and... Yeah, so, you know, miners, it's a wave of kind of miners that get fucked every bull season because the same scenario presents itself. The miners that were a couple months ago, like sitting on the, on the market or going for very low prices, get incredibly marked up. Um, the return on running your equipment goes up so you can cover the electricity and suddenly these, this old equipment or older equipment that was... Um, useless because it wasn't it didn't meet, make enough money as it was spending on electricity is now because of the price appreciation making more money so these old processors are going for more and then the newer ones are obviously too going for a lot more and so people kind of get little guys kind of get fucked every bull cycle that get into mining because of that like phenomenon that happens wow no that, that, that's uh no that's really incredible um so it sounds like you were before getting into all this, living like a fairly uh, normal life, playing football, you know, just being like an average millennial. Playing football and then the operate uh, entrepreneurial stuff with the phone. I was making good yeah. money doing that. Yeah, no, I mean that 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 certainly takes like a lot of uh, responsibility and being proactive. That that being said, like I I can definitely hear the amount of knowledge you have in these subjects, mm -hmm. and it also sounds like you guys were um, making fairly uh, serious and you know, for lack of better words, adult agree like business agreements with like a major uh, company uh, using a lot of capital. Yeah. Um, these were these were private investors, but yeah. another guy. So another thing that happened after I was doing this 
that we had our operation a little bit before prices completely crashed is I met a guy at a crypto meetup and I'm not going to dox him either, but he's a probably the biggest crypto lawyer in Arizona and works at one of the biggest law firms in the West Coast. Uh, approached me or we just started talking we became friends and he had about him and his partner had about half a million dollars of capital to invest in a mining operation and I was going to be the chief operating officer and this guy this other party was going to be the CEO uh, I wasn't going to have to put up any capital more than the miners that we already had and I was essentially going to run the operation. It was going to be in Flagstaff. We scouted an application. We started lease agreement stuff. But I ran the the numbers as the difficulty of my... of. There's a metric called the Bitcoin difficulty. And that's essentially how many people are on the network, meaning how difficult it is to mine one Bitcoin in simpler terms. And so I saw the difficulty increasing, which affected... Which has an inverse relationship with the amount that we make or the dividends that we get from mining. And I saw that we were going to have to operate at a loss for foreseeably through my financial projections about nine months to, to, to a year. And me being just a 19-year-old was just like, I don't want to operate at a loss. Um, I don't feel comfortable with that. And it got me worried about the current operation that we had. And so I basically told him, I showed him my projections, and he had similar ones too, and I, we made the decision not to go through with that company. It was going to be called BitShovel. Yeah, I mean, when I hear all this, it sounds like it would have, uh, for a lot of people, been like a pretty, honestly, nerve-wracking and terrifying experience, like dealing with um, major contracts and a lot of money and yeah. uh, long-term plans you know nine yeah, months I, to a year i mean I, were, were you like just having like tons of anxiety like how yeah man my mental health was like is definitely a low point in my mental health and just my own perceived value of myself after i had lost some people some money i went into a depressive state probably for about a year or two and wasn't actively trading um just was in a funk man yeah and i think 2020 or when i got covid like four months ago I was at the lowest place. I had broken up with my ex, uh, or we had broken up, whatever you want to call it. Um, and we were together. She was with me through all that, um, and the mental health too. And I was just at my lowest, the lowest point in my life. And so I just realized that, I, and I was still trading at the end, like in 2020 and 2019. But um, I just had a, a revelation, man, that I wasn't gonna like let my past mistakes define me yeah and they weren't even that big of, i mean they were big mistakes but it wasn't my fault it wasn't my management of the operation it was outside syst systematic either systemic or systematic risk i forget there's two yeah 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 one, i don't know i don't know yeah the one is yeah i always forget um but whatever that type of risk and it affected the whole market so all the players that were involved were affected by it so it was something yeah. from a broad industry standpoint so i i internalized it as my own failure but really now i come to terms with the fact that it was something out of my control yeah well you know first of all if you know ever in the future you feel just really mentally down you know always feel free to reach out i'm, I'm yeah, sorry to hear that you went through all that um lately you've seemed uh to be a bit in a good mood it seems like you've kind of been firing on cylinders how, how did you manage to kind of get out of it was it just time or 
Um, yeah, I, um, and just to get a little personal, I switched my medication that I was on, uh, and that's about the most I'm going to dive into my yeah, mental, okay. my mental health stuff. Yeah. It's just a medication switch. And then, bro, I just realized my potential and I got more serious about school. I became more knowledgeable on my foundations. And now that I'm in my last semester, cause throughout me leaving NAU for football, I would take semesters off to do entrepreneurial ventures I would, um, you know, my business was at a point where the inventory coming in was really good. And so I would have to quit school just to meet the demand of all the people that were trying to sell uh, inventory to me. And so I had kind of put school on the back burner. But now, I, you know, I have a job lined up with a with a big bank, but I'm not going to take that. I'm actually going to go to programming school so I can at the very basics know the basics I mean, I know a little bit of programming, a little bit of Python, a little bit of Java, but just like hello world type stuff, like just very, very basics. Yeah. And I want to create my own algorithm. You know, I have I have aspirations. I have dreams. I'm not going to get into all that. But I think coding is going to be one of those skills where in 10, 15 years, if you don't have at least a background to where you can speak the syntax of it, it's it's going to be detrimental to the amount of opportunities that are going to come your way. Yeah, and I, I know a second ago you just said, um, I, I think you said that you saw your potential. Are you, are you somebody that like just gets really driven by like the amount of stuff you can do or could do? Yeah, I'm very, that comes from football. So f- I played at Chandler High, you know, now they're top five in the country. So I was a very, um, what's the word, reward driven, not reward driven, but a lot of my value stemmed from my productivity. You know, at Chandler I, was, I sucked when I started, but I got a trainer. I became good through just working hard. And a lot of my value was derived from how good I played and the fact that I got a Division One scholarship. And so when I got hurt and I faced two options, either get surgery that could damage it further and potentially mess up my spine or rehabilitate it naturally and like stop playing football, I had coaches turn on me. I had them calling me, telling me I'm damaged goods, that I lied to them, that I was injured before I came up there. And I have a lot of PTSD from it, man, I'll tell you. And so this past seven years since I stopped playing football, or six years, it's sort of been rewiring my brain about that. And I, I'm still a very productivity-based person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm I'm working on a lot of stuff right now. I started my wholesaling business back up. I expanded to Amazon, so now I'm doing uh, a little bit of Amazon store sales, wholesaling, and you know I do my trading and I do my consulting yeah. as well. So I, I keep myself pretty busy, and that's where I find myself the happiest. My goal is to have you know a lot, one of my biggest influences is Tim Ferriss, and I'm not sure if you're familiar. I, with I've him. heard his name. I forget. Who yeah, he wrote the Four Hour Work Week, and a lot of people think that book is like kind of corny, but a lot of the stuff it talks about in there is creating businesses, automating the hell out of them, creating it to where they essentially run on their own and then on to the next. And so that's what I'm trying to do in rebooting my wholesaling business is right now I'm hiring a virtual assistant that can hire, that can take care of a lot of the administration. And then I'm working with another guy who does Amazon sales out here that's creating a pack and ship facility that does all the packing and shipping for the product that I receive and sends it to Amazon to fulfill them. And so 
I don't know if I'm going to be working with him because he's been setting that up on his own, if he'll let me in on that, or if I create my own, or I just contract out to him and just contract these things. And what a lot of people don't understand or they don't get is they want to do everything on their own. And the power is in, you know, what I like to say, when in doubt, contract out. So a lot of people are afraid to network and find people to and pay them to get stuff done, which decreases your bottom line, but it allows you to scale. And so that's what I'm doing right now is I took a lot of my money out of the crypto markets for this business so I can have this business running automated. Eventually, my goal within like a year to where I take kind of a hands off approach and I'm just managing the moving parts um, and people are managing the day to day of it. And so that's where I'm at right now. But I still have some crypto, but I'm just I just reallocated my capital a little bit to stuff that I'm trying to grow a business, you know? Yeah. And it sounds like, uh, you know, based on that book, businesses that kind of start to run themselves and create passive income. Yeah. And then I have uh, Magna my clothing company, which, yeah. yeah. Um, it, I'm doing an NFT model with that. And so NFTs are an ERC 721 protocol on the Ethereum blockchain, which allows you to create digital art. NFT stands for non-fungible token. And what non-fungible means or fun, fungible, however you say it, basically means it can't be divisible past one. So you can create one of one art pieces one of one. And so each one of my clothing articles or whatever products I launch are going to have their own 3D rendered digital asset that everyone who buys has the digital asset and they have the real product. And so that's really cool. What, yeah. So thank you. Thank you, man. So it's uh, it's going pretty well right now. And we launch. I have the product for my first drop and the designs pretty much finalized. And so I get the product for my first drop next week and me and my buddy uh, Ian, he's doing my website and some of my designs. And so we're just basically wrapping, finishing up loose ends so we can do our drop, hopefully at the very latest by the end of March. And you said it's Magna? Magna, not MAGA. Yeah. Are, are you guys worried about? No, not related. No, because Magna is a Latin word Okay. and it means great. Yeah. And anyone who, you know, there's plenty of stuff that, you know, there's a company called Fucked. Yeah. Their name is Fucked. Yeah. And they're, they're still successful. Yeah, fucking awesome. The skate. Yeah, and I like, I've had my Magna brand. I started out as a record label when, you know, one of the things I was doing when I was up at NAU was making music. And that's kind of how I met Elijah, one of the guests on your other podcast, and got introduced to Jay. And I was making music, but I, I still like to make music. It's, it's a creative outlet for me, but... Yeah. Right now, I'm just trying to work as hard in my 20s so my 30s can be spent managing these businesses, doing real estate like with other capital and like the growth phase, the hyper growth is going to be in my 20s and then I'm hoping and most of my, my early 30s yeah, and then sort of the management phase after that and sort of keeping this wealth and growing it at maybe not as aggressive of a rate, but making sure there's also consistent growth too, even though it may not be like a hyper growth period. And so that's kind of my plans yeah. for my life. Well, no, I, I gotta say, I think it's like really encouraging and inspiring to hear that you have such a precarious plan of like goals and how to execute them and like where you want to be later and what you'll do from there. Because like personally, I, um, 
you know, I run Tall Skeleton as a multi-media uh, business. And my main goal is to be a filmmaker. I want to direct feature films, but in the meantime, I really enjoy making music videos, short films, podcasting as sort of a hobby. And I wind up yeah. doing a lot of different things too. And, you know, I, I heard you kind of talking about uh, productivity and self-value. And like, I, I something I've dealt with for a really long time is sometimes I wind up, I think, chalking up the enjoyment of my days based on how productive I think I'm being, which I think is pretty negative because it's good to be like a self-starter and a productive person and have goals. But I think like if you're not enjoying your day-to-day life, you're kind of failing to an extent because that's the most important thing. That that can be taken away from you. You know, I think this COVID situation, I've lost some family members to COVID. Um, uh, I know you've had some loss and yeah, and yeah, I'm so it, sorry to hear that though for you as well. Yeah, bro, but it, it's it's everyone, you know. Everyone's been affected by it. So it just reminded me about the fragility of life. So I kind of walk a tightrope of enjoying my life and being productive. But yeah. the things and the industries that I'm involved in, I love electronics, I love business. Actually, I get enjoyment out of. So the I think for anybody wanting to own their own business or wanting to become an entrepreneur, don't, you know, I don't bake and I don't find baking enjoying. I'm not going to go out and try to create baked cakes for a living or as an entrepreneur because that's not what I enjoy. Yeah. You know, that's something that I have started to find really negative about hustle culture because like if you spend too much time with your YouTube algorithm kind of in that Gary V world, well, like I see, I saw this, like this one kid, he's probably 19 or so. And he's clearly just making a fuck ton of money off of like Shopify and like setting up online stores. And it sounded like a less inspired version of what you're doing where you're, you're creating businesses that you want to eventually run themselves, but they're based on your specific interests. This guy was making a whole video about how he was going to make like custom pet dog socks where people can send in photos of their dogs and get a really, really cheap, shitty sock of it back, you know. And he was showing himself go to like all these extreme lengths to create websites and mobile ads and do product research and find the cheapest thing available so he could eventually make tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars through these like passive businesses. But I was thinking like, in terms of the value he's adding yeah. to society and the amount of personal enjoyment he's giving himself other than the fact that he's just yeah. making money, like it seemed just really empty, b- bleak. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of that hustle porn industry, you know, you have guys like Gary Vee, you have guys, I don't really like watching some of that motivational stuff. You know, if it inspires you, dude, like I'm not going to be here and tell you that. Yeah. Shit, but like if it inspires you and inspires you, but for me, Personally, music inspires me. So throughout the day, I just listen to my favorite music and that kind of drives me. You know, I either always am listening to music in my car when I get out of my car to do the day to day of my business. I have my headphones in and I think that's what makes it sustainable is because I'm doing little things like that. Uh, A big thing that helped my productivity is I stopped smoking weed during the day. And I stopped smoking weed outside of either to go to sleep yeah. or for uh, big occasions. If I'm with some people and they're smoking, like I'll, I'll smoke some. But uh, I just think when you smoke during the day, you're just fighting that inertia. Like marijuana, the compound, especially indica, you know, slows you down. So if you're in an, er- an area or in your life where you feel like you're not going anywhere... 
smoking weed during the day is only going to perpetuate. You're only going to be fighting an uphill battle. And I, I at least realize this for myself. If I smoke during the day, I'm fighting this uphill battle of my sharpness, my focus, the ability for me to, to make critical decisions quickly. Mm-hmm. And I just decided it wasn't worth it because I was a big, I would smoke, man, like about an ounce a week. And during the day, like five, ten times a day, man, like really. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I, I had an issue with uh, smoking every day and like through the day for like the last, mm-hmm. I would say, two, almost uh, three years. And, you know, I got to a point a while ago where the majority of the times I would ha- I was having panic attacks and not enjoying it. But then every exactly. single time I would tell myself this is different this time and it never was. So I did uh sober october the last two years and both times it was really helpful to me and then now i've been sober the entire year so i'm almost at two months now which is really good and uh yeah i i found the first time i was sober for a whole month what i found is my general anxiety and just kind of inner chatter was greatly diminished and Mm -hmm. i think the level of capability I felt that I had was way up. I felt more like I could accomplish the goals I was setting out for myself with my videos. And also like you start to get your dreams back a lot more. You get your dreams back. You feel inspired. Like I dream throughout the day. I'm Christian man. And I, I'm, I, I don't really identify with the hyper spiritual movement. And that's just my own beliefs, man. Believe whatever you want. You like astrology, you like all that stuff. Um, I won't really go deep into that, but what for me personally, um, God kind of sustains what where I can't, and that's yeah. you know that's just me. So um, I can only speak to that. Like I do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I don't have the motivation. A lot of people think I'm a workaholic. A lot of people think that I don't make enough time for fun things and that I'm working all the time, but. I get that energy and I get that. I do my work as unto the Lord, as the scripture says. And I'm not perfect. Like I smoke, I drink, like, you know, I don't always make the best decisions, but I'm growing myself. But yeah, I I think as long as, you know, people are self-aware and they take some time to kind of reflect on their actions and if it's like serving them and, you know, if they want to change things, you know, all, all people can do is their best. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's all that God asks from you is your best. And I think a lot of times the way that people get away from connecting to a higher power is because they're ashamed of what they do. And, you know, shame is the devil's biggest tool to drive you away from your purpose because shame is oppressive. You know, shame like, okay, I stuttered in this conversation today or I said something I shouldn't have and then you just – it creates this whole snowball effect of thinking where you're just like down on yourself and then your energy for the day gets affected. And so, man, I run from negative thoughts, man. I don't entertain them. People who are negative, like I isolate myself away from them. And if I get, I I believe a lot in frequencies. I believe that you operate like just knowing you operate at at a, or vibrating at a high frequency. It's kind of corny. No, I, I honestly agree with that because but, I, I think that like, you know, everything in the world is like quite literally energy. energy and it's like, you know, flowing through us from the food we eat to the thoughts yeah. we have. And, you know, we certainly impact each other just by being around each other. Yeah. And I think it's really meaningful to have, you know, inspiring, uh, positive people around you. Yeah. yeah. And people who don't drain your energy or your sauce, 
people that just take and take and take. I've separated myself from those people. And those people ask me, like, why don't you hang out with me anymore? And a lot of the times I'm honest with them because I don't think I don't think I care still care about these people and I want them to be better in their lives. Or if they have bad habits that have rubbed off on me that I can't surround myself with, Mm -hmm. I tell them, like, bro, I can't be around that because I'm trying to go to the next level in my whole life. Like I can't have dead weight. I can't have people who are influencing me in the wrong ways with things that I'm trying habits that I'm trying to get rid of. It's just not conducive to my plan. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely one of the more difficult things about being an adult and just kind of realizing that it all comes down to you giving yourself what you need and, you know, just being your own parent. Uh, you know, I, I deal with a lot of negative thoughts too. I kind of overthink a lot. I'm like mad at myself almost all the time. So when I was smoking, it was giving me panic attacks that usually was in the form of me thinking about every conversation, every tweet I've had in the last week and just finding reasons as to why I'm like an idiot. And like, you know, something, uh, one of my therapists said was how, like when you're having a negative thought, it's good to just kind of, instead of letting it run away, like look at it for a sec and kind of question it and find counter arguments so that, because she was kind of, we were talking about how like your brain has neurotransmitters and you kind of form habits. Yeah. And if you have the habit of Pathways. having, yeah, if you have the pathway of having a negative thought, it impacts you. And then that's the whole situation. Then you kind of need to form the counter habit of disproving them in your head. So then that way they, you know, don't bother you and they don't last. And I, uh, but it sounds like you're, you know, just describing like just trying to prevent them from happening in the first place. I wish I could kind of take my mental pathways out because I see people struggling with this and I've struggled with it for a long time, but I don't know if it's just the way my brain's set up. Like I have like, even like I'm, I'm a shooter, man. Like, I'm not going to I'm not going to say I womanize, but like, you know, what I mean, I'm not afraid to shoot my shot with somebody and a lot of people are. So it's like I'll shoot out of my league and I get shot down and it's just like, hey, happens, man. Charge it to the game. And so a lot of people appreciate have told me they appreciate my confidence in in that aspect. But um, it's the same kind of mentality as just like not letting those. The Bible calls it take every thought captive. And so when I hear a thought in my head that I don't believe is my thought. I know it's negative energy. I know it's negativity. It's there's it's a spirit of negativity mm-hmm. that's trying to infiltrate my day-to-day thought. I literally like grab that thing and like wrestle it and like choke it out and leave it behind, bro, because if you can train your brain to do that, you won't spend a lot of the times reminiscing on the things you should have said, the things you should have did. You operate where you operate in the present and the future as opposed to looking back in the past. And I think looking back in the past is important to learn lessons from it. But if you've learned that lesson, you've already established what you could have done differently. Freaking throw that thing. It's called um, in football. I forget what they called it for cornerbacks. Um, short memory or something like that, where basically if a, if a cornerback is getting burned by this receiver, he has to immediately take that out of his brain and not let him affect it because he's got to line up against this guy either for the next play or for the next hundred plays if it's the rest of the game. And if you let that get in you, and even with as a defensive lineman, like when I when I pancake someone and get a sack, you can look at my huddle, my highlight films, Cruz Flores, <laughs> number 54, Chandler football. But uh, when I would get a pancake, I wouldn't even let the positive things 
reminisce on because you get a good sack, you get the quarterback next play, you let some, you let a running back go through your gap, and he scores on you. And all that dopamine that you got from that last thing is immediately reversed by the negative uh, stress of losing a play. And so sports did everything for me. Will I let my kids play football? No, man. I'm like a walking Frankenstein. I've had two knee surgeries, back injections, degenerative disc disease. Like it's, it's a miracle I'm walking. I mean, my primary care doctor, whenever he sees my MRI is just like, I have the back of a 60 year old at age 24 and I got to live with that, which is like, you know, I got to lose some weight, but I don't even let myself get caught up in those things. Like the things I need to do, I take my day and I break it down from a top-down perspective um, in the sense where I establish the things I need to get done this day. I don't beat myself. I, I establish priorities like, okay, this thing's priority one. These three things are priority one. I have to get these done, like studying for a test or going to class. And then I have priority two things, things I need to get done that are on maybe less of a time crunch. And then I have priority three things, like if I get priority one and priority two done, I don't feel bad that uh, doing these priority three things. And a lot of those things are my creative outlets. I don't have as much time to make music as I used to. um, But when you take that approach and you write things down and you physically check the box of getting things done, it's a dopamine hit. Yeah, I uh, I create a to do list every day, or, yeah. and and sometimes when I'm like about to go to bed, I start thinking about things that I didn't realize I have to do the next day, and then I'll just make it the night before to make sure that it's uh, right exactly. there. Well, um, I I, th- I think we can call it, but th- thank you so much. I think yeah, that man. was a really good conversation, and I'm glad we got to talk about just yeah. some of those life things at the end because exactly. I I really think just a lot of people um can benefit from those sorts of mentalities and habits and. Uh, you know, some people get to hear that sort of reinforcement all the time, and then some people have never heard that sort of stuff before at all. So I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Glad to be here. And also, I'm sorry. I I, to- I see you wearing a mask. I totally slipped to wearing a mask. I don't have any qualms about wearing a mask. I'm not an anti-masker, but I want that to be known. <laughs> On the record, Cruz Flores is not an anti-masker. <laughs> yes, thank you. Thanks for coming on, dude. Okay.